All right, time for another edition of Holding Court, everyone. And I've been looking forward to this for a long, long time now. Uh, I got to come clean with everyone. Jose Higueras, my guest today, is a longtime friend of mine, uh, a colleague at the USTA for many years. And uh, I'll just start with this, Jose, because I want to ask you about your background. Uh, I know it, but of course, many people may not. Uh, how you got into tennis, your great career as a player, and of course, as a coach, and then working with me at the USTA. But when, when I decided to hire you, when I was running USTA player development as our head of coaching, I said to myself, not only is this guy a great coach, which you are and still are, but you're a better person. And after our years together at the USTA, now I've been long gone there for a number of years, I still uh, agree with my assessment at that time. So it's great to have you on, and I appreciate you giving me some time here on Holding Court. How are you? Good. How are you, Patrick? Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be here, and uh, thank uh, you for your for your kind words. Well, they're Very still nice. they're still true, <laughs> but I want I want people that you know many people, of course, in the tennis world know you extremely well for your coaching career. You've coached many of the greatest players ever. You've spent a little time with Sampras, with Federer, a long time with Michael Chang and Jim Courier, uh, and of course with a lot of the young players we see now in, in American tennis through your position with the USDA. But I, I, I find your story about how you started, how you got started in tennis as a young kid in Spain uh, really, really cool. So could you tell our audience a little bit about how you got your start uh, as a tennis player? Yes. Um, well, uh, no, not your typical star. Um, I was born in the in the country as um, into a very very poor very poor family. So I started working as a ball boy um, at the Real Club in Barcelona when I was nine years old. And in those days, um, ball boying was was a little different. We were working for money, and uh, and I was and my first my first uh, uh, wage was uh, twenty five cents an hour. Hmm. So that's how that's how. <laughs> That's how Manolo Santana started. That's how Manuel Orante started. In those, Andres Jimeno. In those days, um, the best players in Spain were were um, you know, ace ball boys. So there, there's always some some uh, somebody in your life that uh, that lends you a hand. And I had a great uh, model in, uh, at the club, a teacher, best teacher I've seen with young kids, which is what I got some of my uh, uh, a lot of my ideas uh, teaching. And uh, he he helped me like he did a bunch of other kids, and um, and from there we went, you know. And, and uh, I ended up having a a, a nice uh, tennis career. I wasn't the, the most talented player, uh, but uh, but I was a pretty hardworking uh, person, and uh, it was never enough time to to keep uh, practicing. So ended up having a pretty nice <laughs> a pretty nice career, and um, and I love tennis. I mean, that's what I've done all my life, and uh, from. From my playing career, I started uh, transition to coaching. Uh, I was I've been lucky enough to come across some great athletes and, and, and great players and good people, and until today. So so tennis has been good to me. Um, I love the game, and uh, and I'm always willing to uh, to help in any way I can. Well, you've been so very you. yeah, you've been, you've been unbelievably good to tennis, and you still are. And by the way, pretty good getting to six in the world is what is what you did. Your highest ranking on the men's tour is pretty uh, pretty darn good in my book. And a uh, couple of deep runs at the French Open, of course, clay was your best surface. But what I'm very interested about in this story is. You know, obviously, you mentioned Santana, who just passed away, one of the all-time greats from Spain. Arante, yes. who won the U.S. Open when it was on green clay, and uh, yes. was a great, you know, feel had a great feel for the ball. So, so mostly these guys were players that were 
kind of kind of from the other side of the tracks. Like you said, you're you know poor families, and of course it's changed yeah. over the years. But what what and you're talking about the Real Club in Barcelona, which is still the where they play that big tournament, right? Yes, yes, correct, correct. Yeah, yeah. In those days, I mean, for for us, uh, this gentleman in Barcelona, as I said, his name was Juan Ventura, and uh, <clears throat> and what he did uh, besides helping uh, the, the ball was he used the ball boys. Um, we we could work until we were 14 years old, and then after 14, you had to leave. And then through my through my going, started to play. Uh, I realized how lucky I was because a lot of my my peers, uh, some of my uh, ball boy friends, uh, well, some of them went to jail. Some of them uh, you know, were working construction. Some of them went but, to jail. But, <laughs> yes, because <laughs> once again, the background. The ba- background, you know, it, we were in the street basically. Okay. And uh, and, and this gentleman will uh, will help you. And then du- during the weekends, where he had his school, the, the tennis school for the club, Saturday and Sunday, he will he will invite you to come. And then from there, he will actually find you job. His reputation was so great that he will find you job at club. So he helped so many kids like me. Uh, he helped me trying to, you know, becoming a player, but he has so many other other uh, children becoming really good teachers at, at, at club in Spain. So so basically, that, that was our escape of, of making something, um, you know, with, with our lives in terms of being able to help our families and all that. Let me, yeah, I let, mind you, okay. yeah, I, I mind you, Patrick, that when I was born in, a, I was born in the country in the south of Spain in a house with no water, no electricity. And uh, and basically, I mean, I had my first, uh, you know, my first TV, black and white, when I was 16 years old, and uh, and couldn't run it every day because it was too expensive the, the electricity. So uh, some things that it starts to relate into this world because um, we're so lucky to have so much. But um, but anyway, I wouldn't change it for anything. But that's interesting, uh, interesting, um, interesting story. One one of the things that I've always uh, I've always admired about you, Jose, as a as a coach, and I want this is uh, I want to ask you about this coach that you had when you were a kid. Is in, in all the years I watched you and I learned from you as a coach, I never once heard you raise your voice to any any player. And it, did that come from your experience as a kid and this coach that you had? You said you learned a lot of things about working with young kids from this particular coach. Is that something you learned or is that just part of your personality? Well, uh, a little bit of both. Uh, you know, in those days, in the early 60s in Spain, we were living under a, dicta- a dictator, uh, Franco. So, so I kind of felt, I felt the power of power in my head. Mm. And, uh, and, and that is something that always stood with me. So, so, uh, through, through, through my life, I've always, I've always, um, I've always try, I've always try to not to remember because I do remember, but, but it's something that, that is not a very, it's not a very good feeling, uh, feeling the power of other people mm. on you. And, uh, and, and I think that those experiences, uh, kind of help me. And you know me, Patrick, I mean, I'm a pretty, I think I'm a tough coach. Uh, in, in a good in a good way, I'm a tough coach because I want the, the players to do better. But I think I'm a very fair coach, and uh, and uh, I will never. I mean, I can tell you at this point, I'm 69 years old. I have never yelled at anybody on the court. I have never insulted anybody in the court, and I will, and I never will, because that is a that is a power play that I do not. Uh, once again, that I felt it myself in my youth, mm. and uh, and, I, and I didn't like. 
I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to remember that line, Jose. That's the first time I've ever heard you say that. I felt the power of power in my head. That's, that's intense, and that's, uh, yep. that explains a lot. All right, so let me ask you just a couple of uh, what I think are fun questions. Um, yeah. Better, you know, g- compare to me the, the games, the personalities, and I'm going to start with these two because obviously they're you know, two yeah. of the greatest ever. Pete Sampras, Roger Federer. Wow. I mean, I mean, Roger, you know, Roger, is, it's hard to compare Roger to anybody because he's, he's so unique on everything he, he how he goes about his game uh, off the court. Um, I mean, I, I would say, I would say they're both, they're both winners. That's pretty obvious. Uh, Pete, you know, Pete was a lot more reserved, um, even though he can crack a joke here and there, but he was a lot more reserved. Where where Roger uh, is always there's always something funny happening with him. You know, you I mean, if he, he lose a, you know, I remember when he got killed by Rafa uh, at the French Open. He got he got four games, and uh, and uh, he we had a get, a get together with a bunch of friends of him uh, from Switzerland and other places with forty people. Like uh, it, it, to me, I was so depressed and I was so, so upset. <laughs> he had he and, had a celebration after getting his ass kicked yeah, in the final, I, right? Yeah, I, I mean, my, my point is that he he he, he was so unique, you know. But, where Pete, where Pete was was a lot more reserved, and, uh, and th- that was the biggest difference. You know, they obviously both great, you know, great champions, but but totally different personalities. And um, and 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 I remember this because uh, we used to talk about it on TV at ESPN that, and and you didn't work for those guys for that long uh, with those guys for that long. But I remember when you worked with Roger, you were trying to get him to use the drop shot right on clay because he hadn't won the French right. at that point. He was trying to win the French, and of course, Mister Nadal was there, so right. that made things a lot more complicated. Um, and <laughs> why why was he so hesitant? Because he ended up using it a lot when he actually finally won the French Open. But you were sort of the first person that said, "Hey, Roger, maybe you should." start using the drop shot on the forehand side how did that go well you know when i first met roger um i, I flew the first time i met him i flew to estoril and uh and uh i lost my bag so uh i didn't have any clothes anyway i got there and um we uh, i got there in, in the afternoon so we started watching tapes and we end up uh, watching video um you know matches his matches on play on hardcore on grass and everything until one or two in the morning. Mm. I mean, he he loves them, and uh, so they are, that's when I, I realized I said, Jesus, you know, he, he doesn't uh, doesn't never hit a forehand drop shot. So I asked him, I said, Hey, Roger, why, why don't you use your why don't you use any, uh, your your drop shot on the forehand side? He said, Well, why would I do that? I have a huge forehand. Right. So then we got into a conversation of the advantages of use of having that shot, which is a very very offensive shot. Mm-hmm. When people think just because you don't hit the ball a thousand miles an hour that it is not offensive, it's extremely offensive. So I said, well, just imagine that you're playing somebody that is a good retriever, is 10, 15 feet behind the baseline. Um, you have two shots when you have a shot to hit. You know, you, you go down the line and you go off the court cross. So you, those are your, your two best chances. Uh, if you have a third option, that's more than likely is going to change. <clears throat> it's going to make the other player change his position mm. uh, and be a little more reluctant to take but anyway, so the conversation went well, and uh, and uh, and then the next day we went and, and since he's, uh, he's he's pretty talented, you know that, don't you? <laughs> yeah, he's not bad with the <laughs> racket, right? Right. <laughs> <laughs> it, didn't, it, didn't, it, didn't, it didn't take him too long to actually start start hitting some some uh, some forehand drops, and then from there on. So that's that, that's the story about that. 
That's amazing. And Pete Sampras would have been different, right? I mean, he was he was more was he a little more rigid in the way he went about? I mean, I I, I think of I think of them a little differently. I mean, obviously they're both as you yeah. said all time greats. I think of Federer as a guy who just loves tennis. You know, loves to play tennis. Yes. And yes. Fe- and and Sampras to me loved to win. That was a difference. Yeah. I mean, he didn't love tennis in the same way. He used tennis, of course. He loved to compete. He he yeah. loved he loved to be in that fun, you know, the, the the big match. Would you say that's accurate? That Pete was a little more like he was just out there, like I'm here to win, not to necessarily just hit the ball. I I I, I would agree with that 100. percent Like I said, Roger Roger likes to feel the ball in his swings. He likes to experiment. Uh, if you tell him, obviously he's not going to experiment with something if he, if he thinks you're full of it. Right, but if you if you tell him something, he will digest it. He will think about it. And those guys are always so thirsty to learn. Uh, mm. the, the only thing, obviously, when you work with a guy like that, uh, you don't have that much to tell them. They know quite a bit already. So you gotta so you gotta be careful, you know, on the information that you give. But if you get the information and they actually uh, um, think it's, it's good, they, they will they will because they want to win and they they great competitors and they want to they want to get better. Well, but two, I, I think your assessment is, is that's why you have a podcast and I don't. <laughs> Listen, <laughs> you know, I just keep on plugging away here. All right, let me ask you this because I do want to talk a little bit about the USTA and our our time yeah. there together and all the blood, sweat, and tears that we put into it. But you a lot more than me over the years. Um, Jim Courier was the guy you spent the most time with. Of course, you work with Michael Chang when he won the French Open when he was just a teenager. Um, so those, I'm, I'm guessing working with those two guys, obviously a little bit different because they were more grinders, more baseline players. What was different about working with each of them? And I know you spent much more time over the years with Jim Courier. Yes. Well, as I, as I got older, actually one of the best things that ever happened to me uh, for my tennis, not only for my playing tennis career, but also for my coaching career, was the fact that uh, I, I learned how to play on clay. And then, the, and then when I, when I got married uh, to Donna, my beautiful wife, and we and I moved to Palm Springs, I got exposed to a whole different uh, way of playing tennis. It was on hardcore, and in those days, it was it was a lot faster. So that kind of really expand my understanding of what the surfaces can do for you, and how and and how important it is uh, to, to understand the game that way to, to make yourself richer when you when you when you play tennis and when you actually go to compete. So so I, I know I know as you said normally and that's my background, but I'm actually saying I'm a I'm, I'm a decently uh, offensive uh, um, mind. Mm-hmm. Now uh, I still be, I still believe that the game is, is uh, <clears throat> tennis is a game of errors. And, uh, and and if you have more errors and you have more winners, of course, so you are going to lose the match. So so the, the 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 secret is to actually be as complete as you can, as complete a player as you can. Which I try to do with Jim and with uh, and with every player that I work with. I mean, with, with Roger is an example. What what, what are you going to tell Roger? He's pretty good. Right. So, but always looking for ways to better. And with, with Jim, for example, I think uh, I think I helped him more than anything with how how he understood the game. And how to use what he had better, but but for example, he uh, when we started, you know, his backhand slide was pretty much uh, non-existent. But he ended up, he didn't have the best backhand slide in the world, but he ended up with a backhand slide that he could actually he could actually play with his body. The same thing. So it's always for me, it's always about getting better. If I get out, if I get up in the morning, 
and I'm working with somebody that, that's in my mind all the time. How can I get this player better? And obviously, depending on the level, um, you know, the, the better, the better, you know, game. But um, but but that, that, that's basically. But with Michael was uh, Michael didn't spend um, <clears throat> that much. I spent with him. He won the French Open. And uh, you probably know that, if I told you, but you know that I never signed a contract with anybody that I work with. Right, right. I know uh, that, yeah. I, I, I always felt that uh, the day that I don't want to be with him or, or him or her don't want to be with me, there is no reason why to, why to, why to, why to keep going. So so anyway, <clears throat> things things happen, but, uh, but, 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 but in general, for me, it's about getting better. Uh, and according to everybody's abilities. Obviously, you cannot... And not have a, a, a like for example with Jim, um, you know we we went to Wimbledon the first time and he used to serve and volley first and second serve, and he wasn't he wasn't uh, he didn't have good enough hands. He had a really good serve. Uh, so anyway, so I said no no listen you, one with this you got a serve and volley, uh, you know couple couple of points a game, understand the score, and then you gonna you gonna try to be very offensive on the first ball when you stay back and actually. Uh, he bought into it, and he got to the finals of Wimbledon, which I thought it was a great feat for him. Yeah, and he and, lost uh, lost to Sampras in the final. Lost, that was that, that was actually in, in a lot of ways sort of the start of the, the 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 changing tactics of how to play on grass. Right, that these you know base, yeah. baseline players were able to play uh, really well on grass. All right, let me. I got to ask you about a couple yes. of base other baseline players. One you know very yes. well, and so does everybody in tennis. That's Mr. Rafael Nadal. Who just miraculously, yeah. in my opinion, uh, you know, though of course everybody's attacking me. How could you write Rafa off? You know, you didn't predict him to win. He was down two sets, and I said that this match is over. But uh, so, just give me your thoughts on you know when you first saw Rafael Nadal as a kid, um, and then just how he's been able to do what he's been able to do over the course of these last you know twenty years of him being on the tour. You know, when I think of Rafa, I think of Borg. Mm. I think they are, they are the two most similar mental guys that I've seen on my tennis career. Uh, I, I always thought, I always thought Borg, um, not always, but I, I thought that Borg would maybe a little stronger mentally, but that, that I changed my mind on that, to be honest. So uh, the first time I saw Rafa was, um, when he was 14 years old. Um, I spent a little time with, uh, with uh, Carlos Moya, spent a year with him uh, after coming back from an injury. And I went to Mallorca and I, see this, I saw this kid. And I mean, the, le- the level of intensity on every single ball he hit was unbelievable. And, uh, and he, he was already, you know, people w- were talking about him already. And then, and then the, uh, he's, 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 such a, he's such a competitor. And, and the thing I like, the most of our rappers um, is how simple he keeps everything. Mm. I mean, how, how, how the simplicity on what he does is really is really amazing to me. Uh, understanding how complicated it is to, to compete at that level with the pressures that are there and, and all that. So if you look at Rafa, at Rafa when 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 he was young and, and you look at it today, how 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 much uh, better tennis player he is. I mean, he was a guy that I remember watching him play um, Andy, Andy Murray, I believe, in 2007, 2008 at the Australian Open, and was just bringing him in, and he looked so awkward and so bad. And and I would say that at this point, Rafa, Rafa is, is if not the most complete, definitely at the top of the most complete players in the game. Uh, he's one guy that will not miss an easy volley. 
Uh, he's got great drafters on both sides. His backhand slice is, may not be a textbook, but he makes it work pretty really damn well. And basically, every time you see him, he actually does something a little bit better. Mm. Something that you you have you haven't seen him that before, or if you haven't if you've seen him do that before, he's actually doing it better. So, so he's he's thirsty. He's so thirsty. And, and actually, I'll tell you something that nobody knows, Patrick, but I'll tell you, I was so close to work with him. And when when um, when he when he got that beat up at the Australia, in Australia, right? I was a match on TV, and and I taped it, and I watched it a few times, and I took some notes. Mm-hmm. And I, I know Rafa and I know Tony well, and I, you know, we're good friends and I love him to death. So I have never once called a player in my life to to work to to, to offer advice or anything. So I, I called Tony, mm-hmm. and and, uh, and Tony answered the phone and he said, "Pepe, hey, listen, uh, believe it or not, I was thinking of you. I was gonna, I was gonna call you as soon as we got home. We are in Singapore, right? So so I said, Tony, this is what I saw. So I kind of went through a list of things that I saw." And uh, he said, listen, uh, Rafa is going to the, uh, he's going to Indian Wells, you know, the month and a half. I'm not going to go. Uh, I'm going to talk to him when he gets there. So anyway, I make a very short. I got together with him. We talked about all those things. I was in the car with him for, for a few days with Francis. And then he ended up winning the tournament. Not because I was that good, because he was that good, obviously. <laughs> right, <laughs> but you helped. Right. <laughs> and then... And then the thought was that once I went back, uh, I, w- I was going to meet with them at the French. Mm-hmm. And then uh, and then we were going to establish something. But he went and won every single thing, every, every, like he does pretty much every year, all right. the Pleco tournaments. So, so I saw Tony. I said, Tony, what? I said, listen, Pepe, everything is going so well, you know, right now. Why don't we leave it like that? And I said, that's fine with me. Yeah, because anyway, he, took, he, took, he took all your information and he used it. And then uh, the rest is history. You know, I mean, as you right. yeah. Well, that uh, that happens, you know, but uh, that happened. But it made me it made me so happy once again when I when I see him. Yes, uh, becoming a thirty five. I mean, he's becoming a better player every time you see him play, which is pretty it's pretty unbelievable. Well, in, in in my opinion, him using the backhand slice uh, midway through the match with Medvedev in the final actually, I thought helped turn the match around um, because he started, I I remember he kind of looked at Carlos Moya, who's now his coach, of course, and has been with them for a couple of years. And uh, as he said, you worked with Carlos for a while. Great guy. And he just, he kind of looked at him and I could, Carlos kind of gave him a look with the eyes, you know, of course you're not allowed to coach, you're not supposed to coach, but it was like, okay, like, you know, plan, we need plan B here, plan B or, you know, plan A is not working at the moment. And and that's what's (laughs) made Rafael Nadal so great. Okay. Before I have uh, one more guy I want to, ask about before we get into the USTA stuff is Juan Martin Del Pocho because he's the gentle giant. I just did a solo podcast on him and, you know, the disappointment that he's have it seemingly is going to retire because of all his multiple injuries. And what, what did you think about, about that? And just about him as a person, I mean, I think he, he's universally loved as far as I can see as a player, because, you know, I call him the gentle giant because he's got this big, you know, powerful, unbelievable game, but just very soft spoken and something about his personality uh, as a competitor and as a player is uh, just all class, isn't it? Yes. Uh, You know, when I think about, about um, Juan Martin, uh, I think about a a great success and a sad story, both. Uh, I I watched the clip uh, of his uh, match yesterday um, when he uh, broke down, when he was playing the bonnies. And uh, it's really sad. And I think one of, for me, one of the saddest things for an athlete is, is to have to retire because of injury. 
and uh, and unfortunately that that happened to him. But I mean, he he was legitimately the only guy that was challenging Rafa and Roy. And 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 when and when, when they when they were at their absolute prime well, too, yeah, in their in yeah, their prime. Yes, because because he, you know, he had he was he very good competitor. That's the first thing. So com- competitiveness was there, but uh, he had so much leverage in in, in his shots, big serve. Huge forehand, great backhand uh, until he got hurt. Right, and uh, and he just he just was was uh, unlucky enough, you know, to actually come up with that with that uh, risk injury. I don't know him personally as much as I will know Rafa or, or Roger. Right, but everything I've heard from him has been it's always been how kind how kind he is. He always carries himself with a with a, with class and and. and, and and show respect to, to, to everybody. So right. it, it, it's a it's a tough it, it's a tough it's a tough situation. But it would have been interesting to actually see him uh, play with these guys, you know, with Roger, Rafa, and Novak uh, at, at full speed, like like he was, because he was the only guy that that, that really that, that that scared them, to be honest. Yeah, so and he, he would and, take the racket out of your hand. Right, and he also wasn't he didn't he didn't seem to be intimidated by them, you know, no. psychologically when he went out on the court with them. All right, so we we've already and we knew this was going to happen, Jose. Okay, because yeah. we've we've already done the amount of time I usually do for one podcast, and but we okay. I, I want to get into this, uh, you know, your experience with the USTA because you and I, as I said, work together there. But here's the deal, okay? We've already gone 25 minutes, but we're going to go right. another whatever it takes to because I want to hear your side of the story, and I know the tennis fans do. But here's the deal: I got to go teach a tennis lesson right now, okay? Great. So you're going to appreciate that. And, uh, and I'm going to learn, I'm going to put in, in play the things I've learned from you. Cause actually in the last few years, since I, since I left the USTA and then I went yeah. on to work with my brother at, at our Academy here in New York, I've actually right. become more of a coach on the court, which is great. Cause I never really did that at the USTA and I'm actually not that bad at it, Jose. And I give you a lot of credit for that. Cause you know, I, I'm, I'm a little, I'm decent. Maybe when we, maybe if I'd been a, more of a coach at the USTA, I might've done a better job. You know what? I wouldn't be surprised. I, I never, I never saw you as a politician, to be honest. <laughs> so, so you kind of became one for a few years there. But, uh, but, but uh, I mean, you, you, you're a tennis guy. You're a tennis guy. You, you were a very good player. You, you love tennis. I mean, I'll, I'll uh, just hearing you on, uh, on, on, on the, uh, on ESPN, um, you can tell if you were interested enough or love the game enough, you wouldn't be as good as you are doing that. So. So anyway, I'm, I'm glad you have a lesson. I wish I had one, but uh, I'm getting old, and people don't want to work with you. <laughs> I'm so, I, I, I doubt that very much. All right, so we're gonna we're gonna take a little break here on holding court. Then when we come back, which is gonna happen momentarily, although it's gonna be in real time, it'll be you know in an hour or so. Let me do my lesson, Jose, and right. we'll get back and get your notes ready on your experience right. with the USTA, and we will hit that hard in part two of my podcast with the great Jose Higueras here on Holding Court. Holding Court with Patrick McEnroe is powered by Mudhouse Media. 